Amen, friends, if you would. I'd like to dismiss the kids out this side door with Miss Joy for Jump Start. Uh, thank you, Ty. And then, Ty, can you go grab my Bible off the front pew? That's an important thing, right, in God's house. Uh, with that in mind, grab your Bibles, open up to the book of Genesis, if you will, Genesis chapter 12. Uh, we're taking a break from Lent right now, uh, mostly because it's been a really tough year for everybody, and I really just want to encourage you uh, to endure this year. And I think the main way uh, that we can endure is by seeing the big picture of what God is up to in our world. And so that's going to be the focus of our new series. Uh, our passages this morning, there's going to be two. Uh, it's going to be in Genesis chapter 12, and then again in Genesis chapter 17. So if you can, go to that first book in your Bible, Genesis 12. Uh, if you don't have a print Bible, it should be on the screen, but what a wonderful opportunity to start bringing your Bible to church uh, and a pen as well. We're going to be looking at God's Word a lot over the next several months. Look with me at Genesis chapter 12. We'll read verses 1 through 3, and then we'll flip over to Genesis chapter 17. A friend, hear the word of the Lord to us. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now flip over to Genesis chapter 17. This is continuing the story of Abraham and God's covenant promise to use him to bless all of the nations. This is Genesis chapter 17, verses 1 through 8, continuing in the story of Abram. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession and I will be their God. Friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will endure forever. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Would you be seated and keep that Bible open in front of you? Uh, well, as you can tell, uh, we have a new sermon series that we're starting today, and we are calling it Whole. And, and so Liz Rudd made these beautiful uh, uh, things, I don't even know what to call them, Liz, frames, uh, to remind us of the whole story of God. And when we're talking about that, what I mean is the whole story of God's steadfast love. So, uh, you know, in this series, which I know I have been teasing for like for weeks, uh, we're going to actually going to be studying the whole Old Testament together, Okay. And we're going to see how the whole Bible tells one big story, the story of God's steadfast love to our world, our world which he created for his own glory, which tragically fell into sin and decay and death. And yet it also is a story about how God has chosen by his own sovereignty and will to redeem this broken world and to one day restore it. 
uh, right? This, this heavens and earth that we live in, you know, the world that you and I inhabit, where you and I live, you know, even though it's broken by sin, is going to be redeemed in Jesus Christ and is one day going to be restored into what the Bible will call a new heavens and a new earth, right? This is the big story of the Bible, and we're going to see over the next several months how each book in the Old Testament actually reveals a part of that big story. Uh, so, uh, you know, you may be thinking, okay, uh, how are we going to do that? <laughs> how is every book in the Old Testament part of that big story? And then how am I going to unpack that? Well, it's a good question, and here's how we're going to do it. I'm going to preach one sermon on each book in the Old Testament per week for 39 weeks, straight through the Old Testament. There are 39 books in the Old Testament, and I'm going to take one book in the Old Testament per week and preach on it. Today is Genesis, and next week is going to be what? Exodus, and then Leviticus, and so on. One book per Sunday, week by week. Uh, by studying the whole counsel of God this way, the whole Old Testament, uh, I actually want to suggest to you that this is going to bless the whole people of God, because I believe the whole counsel of God is for the whole people. So whether you are young or old, or you're a man or a woman, or whether you are watching in person or you are watching online, whether you are a middle schooler or a middle ager, <laughs> uh, you and I, if you are in Christ, we can all be wrapped up in the great story that God is telling through the Scriptures. And if we study it, we will become changed people. Okay, so um, first, I just have to do a quick disclaimer as I start this, because obviously there's no way to do true justice to every book in the Bible in only one sermon, right? <laughs> I recognize that, and we will go back when we're done with this series to more of a, a standard, take a book and walk through it. Uh, but I also want to suggest to you that we need to see the big picture, and then we can sort of go back into the woods. Uh, so if I'm preaching on Genesis and I don't answer your questions that you have about Genesis— or you just have general questions about the Bible, uh, know that Wednesday night Bible studies are going to be a follow-up to the sermons that I preach. So if I don't answer every one of your questions about Genesis this morning, well, tune back in Wednesday night at 6.30 for the online Bible study, and I'll try to answer any questions that you have. You can, just, you can reach me at my email, or you can call into the church. My email is jernigan at jvillepres.org. If you have questions about Genesis, email me, and I'll answer them Wednesday night. Uh, so, with that, all right, who's excited? Anyone? Anyone very challenged? Because this is, I don't know anybody who's, I don't really know people who have done this, which is always a great way to start a new project, right? But how in the world are we going to possibly get through the entire book of Genesis in one sermon? And does the Bible actually tell one big story? Well, I would suggest to you that it does. And like any good story, it has chapters to it. Uh, and I'm going to use chapters as sort of like an analogy to the Bible. Think about it this way. Uh, the big story of the Bible is telling the creation story, what's wrong with us in the fall, right? We fall into sin. What God is going to do as he redeems this world, how is God going to fix what's wrong with us? And then where is this world headed? And the Bible says this world is headed towards restoration. He's going to restore all things. So like any good storybook, it has four chapters. God has created a world, chapter one. That world has fallen into sin, chapter two. God has chosen of his own free will and sovereignty to redeem this world. And God is going to one day restore the world. So when you read the Bible, it's very interesting. It begins in a garden, in creation. 
And where does the Bible end in Revelation? With heaven and earth reunited in sort of a garden. Which dimensions reflect the temple? Which was meant to remind us that God and humanity in this world were meant to live in unity together. It's the big story of the Bible. All right, so how does Genesis then, more, maybe more specifically, how does Genesis tell that story? Well, uh, Genesis is very helpful. It's the first book in the Old Testament, right? How does Genesis tell the creation account? Well, if you go to Genesis 1-1, the very first words in the Bible, what does the Bible begin with? In the beginning, there's a, there's a cue on the side, right? You can see that, right? You can cheat. You, could, you, you don't have to memorize this, but many of you probably have it memorized. In the beginning, God did what? He created the heavens and the earth. And then, of course, if you keep going through Genesis chapter 1 in the creation account, God orders this world. He makes distinctions, right? Uh, there's, there's day, there's night, right? There's the land, there's the sea, right? He makes all of these beautiful distinctions. And then sort of at the end of the creation week, God says he's going to make man after his own image, right? And then that's where we get those famous words in Genesis 1. Then God said, let us make man in our image. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them, right? So we see this account of God creating this world, and God has a unique role for men and women who are equal before God, equal in dignity, and have a unique calling above anything else in creation to serve as God's image bearers in this world, right? So if you think about the, the Genesis account of creation, you know, we could get more into it, but Essentially, what we see in Genesis is we see the goodness of our world, right? What does God say on day six? He saw that it was very good. You know, we continue to see to this day the beauty of creation, right? Uh, just because this world is marred by sin does not mean it doesn't reflect the glory of God. I mean, think about the, the beauty of the sunrise, right? Uh, the smell of coffee in the morning. If that doesn't make you give glory to God, I don't know what will. But after the dark night, you wake up in the morning, and buddy, if you got Folgers going, you know, uh, I'll use sort of a different analogy that the Bible will use. Imagine the most fabulous, over-the-top wedding you have ever seen, where everyone is excited. There's a handsome, joyful groom, and there's a beautiful bride. I mean, that's, where, that's what Revelation depicts restoration as, the best wedding you've ever been to, all the fireworks, all the over-the-top helicopters, all the joy, right? There's this beauty in creation, right? Uh, the sound of a symphony. You know, I could keep going, but you see that in the world that you and I live in, it still bears the marks of a good creator God who is himself creative and the source of all creativity and goodness, but of course, you know, when you read Genesis, what happens, right? The fall happens, right? Sin enters this world. In Genesis 3, uh, we're introduced to this sort of uh, demonic, evil, spiritual force that we don't really know what it is, but as the Bible goes on, it tells us more about it. In Genesis 3, the serpent says to the woman, do you remember what the serpent says? It's very interesting. He said, did God actually say that you can't eat any tree? It's a very interesting question because if you know the creation account, God has put Adam and Eve in the garden, and what does he tell them? He says, you can eat whatever you want except this one tree. And God put it there to remind them that every day they had to choose to remember that he was God and they were not. He sets the rules, they do not. And they are going to honor him with their life, and they can eat whatever fruit trees they want except one out of honor to him. 
right? And so what does the serpent come along and say? He says, did God actually say you can't eat anything? See, what's Satan's lie? What's his deception? Well, Satan's deception of Adam and Eve, um, it sort of goes like this. You know, God, he's sort of a cosmic killjoy, isn't he? I mean, if you really obey him, you're going to be missing out. You're pretty naive if you think all there is to life is obeying God. You know, God is really, like, if you were really to obey his word, you're going to be missing out on a lot in this life. I mean, if that's how you've experienced God, right, remember, you have just fallen for literally the oldest trick in the book, (laughs) right? That is the trick. Did God actually say he's not going to let you eat anything? Man, God just, he just withholds so much good from you, doesn't he? And then, of course, Satan goes on and he lies even more explicitly. He says, well, if you eat it, you know what you get to do? You get to be like God, right? You get to be like him. And that speaks to the heart of every person. We want to set our own rules, right? Don't tell me what I can't do, right? And so the world is broken by sin. And of course, that sin is hereditary. It's passed down to Adam and Eve's children and all humanity all over this planet, right? We see it in the very first kids Adam and Eve have. What do the brothers do? (laughs) Cain kills his brother, and the cycle of sin reverberates through this world. Um, As surely as God's created goodness reverberates, right, every time you hear a symphony or every time the sun rises, the brokenness of sin reverberates in us, through us, and all around us, right? So, uh, I could keep going in examples of Genesis, but those are consistent messages in, in Genesis, right? There's the Tower of Babel. There's Abraham lying and being deceptive. There's Sodom and Gomorrah. There's the sons of Israel selling their brother Joseph, right? <laughs> There's Joseph end, ending up in prison, even though he did nothing wrong, right? The, the book of Genesis teaches us a world where we can see those two chapters very easily. God created a world in which it was meant to be this way, but sin has made it into something else, Right? Uh, think about it like, I think of the world as sort of like a mirror, right? So like if you could picture a mirror in your mind, that mirror is like creation, or we're kind of like that mirror. We are meant to perfectly reflect the glory of God, right? Like imagine God is like this bright shining sun. Our job is to be like a mirror reflecting his glory. And sin has come along with like a sledgehammer and smashed the mirror, right? So there's parts of the mirror that can still reflect the glory of God, but if you look at the big thing, it's broken, right? That's, that's that tension of chapter one and chapter two. There's parts of us that are whole and beautiful, and then there's big parts of each one of us that are deeply cracked. So what is God going to do? Is there a chapter three? Well, Genesis starts to tell the story of what God is going to do. In Genesis chapter three, God promises Eve something very interesting. This is Genesis 3.15, and listen to what God uh, says to Adam and Eve and the serpent. Now, this is a God talking to the serpent. He says, I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring, Satan, and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel, right? So, what's going on? What what is God talking about? Well, as the Bible story goes on, what we see is this is the first reference to Jesus Christ. Jesus is the offspring of Eve. Jesus is fully human and yet miraculously fully God. And Jesus has entered our world as a human to come to put to death the deeds of the flesh. 
Have you, have you ever seen that movie, uh, The Passion of the Christ by Mel Gibson? Do you remember that movie when it came out years ago? I'm not particularly a big fan of that movie, but I am a huge fan of one scene in the very beginning. You can go back and watch this on YouTube because it makes reference to this verse. If you remember the opening scene in, the, in the, uh, uh, that movie, right, uh, what's happening is Jesus is praying in the garden. Do you remember that? And he's, he's praying in Hebrew. And it may be the first time you've ever heard somebody like in an extensive way, speak in Hebrew. So Jesus is praying. He seems very discouraged. You know, uh, it's the garden, you know, where he's about to uh, be arrested. And, you know, who shows up? Well, Satan shows up, right? And he's got this kind of black hood. And Jesus looks like he's, he's like shaking. He's so upset about going to the cross. And, you know, Satan releases a serpent. You remember this scene? And this sort of creepy white snake works its way around Jesus. And Jesus hears the Roman guards coming to arrest him. You know, and he looks off, and it looks like Jesus is about to collapse. But then Jesus does what? He stands up, looks Satan right in the eyes, and he just gets this look of determination, and then he stomps on the head of the serpent and marches to meet the Roman centurions. You see, Jesus is the fulfillment of what Genesis is talking about. Who is going to be the human that's going to defeat the serpent forever? Well, the New Testament will tell us that's Jesus. So all that to say, you know, what, what's the big story of Genesis and how is it specifically pointing us into this story about Jesus and how do all these things sort of make sense? Well, look with me again at your passage that we read this morning in Genesis 12. God has created a world that's broken by sin and he's going to redeem it. Well, Genesis 12 teaches us something about God's plan of redemption, God's plan of redeeming this world. And God chooses to use a particular man, a guy named Abraham, which at this point is just called Abram, right? Look at Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I'll make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. You see, what the point of Genesis 12 is, which I would suggest to you are maybe the most important verses in the whole Bible. <laughs> they're, they're certainly up there. The point is, is that in Genesis, we get a creation account, we get the introduction of sin, and in Genesis 12, there begins a, a specific storyline that goes from Genesis 12 through the end of the book, Genesis 12 through 50, and it's the story of a man named Abraham and his family. And God has chosen them for a specific purpose. He's going to bless them and protect them. And why has God chosen to protect and bless them? Because God chooses to use them to bless all of the nations and all of the families on planet Earth, right? God is going to use Abraham and his offspring to literally bless the world. So then that brings up, you know, if you go to Genesis 17, our passage, our second passage we read, God makes a covenant a solemn bond sealed in blood, as uh, one scholar put it, a solemn bond with Abraham, sealed in blood, right? And the sign of the covenant is circumcision. It's sealed in blood, right? Your marriage is a, is a marriage covenant, right? A solemn bond. God makes a solemn bond sealed in blood with Abraham that he will bless him and he will give him the land of Israel as an inheritance, and isn't that amazing? Has it, has it ever dawned on you that we have seen, some of you in your own lifetimes, God's fulfillment of that promise to give the land of Israel 
to Abraham's descendants as an inheritance forever. See, the three chapters go like this. Creation, fall, redemption. God's going to fix this world. And Genesis says God chooses Abraham's descendants to accomplish this. But what about chapter 4, right? Restoration. Will things ever be truly restored? Uh, You know, uh, one way to ask it is, are we ever going to get back into Eden, where God and humanity dwell together? You know, Genesis leaves that question sort of tantalizingly unanswered, uh, you know, but the longing to get back into Eden is is always there. Uh, But really, we need the rest of the Bible to sort of unpack chapter 4. Right, So uh, one way to look at Genesis right, is to see Genesis 1 and 2 as God's creation. Genesis 3 and sort of following is the introduction of the brokenness and sin of this world. And then Genesis 12 through 50 is God beginning his plan of redemption to use the family of Abraham to redeem this world. Right? So all that to say, all right, all right, all right, so we're getting kind of in the weeds. So what, you're telling me? Okay, that was a boring lesson. I like that summary, but so what? What difference does that make? Well, I'm going to give you three things to think about, how this specifically should shape who you are and who you are becoming, and how you conceptualize God, all right? So here's the difference that this story makes, I think, in your life, if you have ears to hear it. Number one, Genesis is revealing to us in this great story that we serve the God of creation. Every day, you and I, we see his creativity We see his beauty all around us. Uh, Think of the way of a mother with a child, Uh, that beautiful wedding, right? The joyful husband, the beautiful bride. Uh, Think about the changing of the seasons, the smell of the snow, uh, the sounds of leaves rustling in the autumn air. Uh, You and I, we get to live in the theater, (laughs) the stage of the glory of God. Uh, We are always to remember that he is the creator. We're here to honor him and to obey him and to remember Like Adam and Eve, we're supposed to remember that he is God and we are not, right? That he sets the rules and we don't. And yet, this story also tells us that at some deep level, each one of us, myself included, we have rejected God. And the tragedy is we continue to do so. The temptation of Adam and Eve to slip into sin, it impacts us. We second-guess God. We want to change his word to suit what we think is just or right and fair instead of hearing and obeying him. Um, I think for many of us, Satan still whispers in our ears, right? Isn't God just a cosmic killjoy? I mean, let's be honest. Isn't your resentment, your avoidance of God justified? The lies of Satan are still impacting us. He's the God of creation, and yet we reject him. But here's the amazing truth. It's not just that he's the God of creation. That's the first thing that changes our lives. The second thing, the beautiful thing that we see all throughout the book of Genesis is he's not just the God of creation. He's the God of second chances. He is the God of second chances. Think about it this way. When Adam and Eve eat of the fruit and they hide, what does God say? In Genesis 3, God shows up and he says, where are you? And they said, we're naked. And what does God, the Father, say? Who told you that? And he clothes them, and he gives them the first promise that Jesus is going to redeem them. Uh, When Cain gives that sort of weak offering, what does God do? God stops Cain, and he warns him, and he gives him a second chance. He warns him before he kills Abel. He says, don't do it. 
I mean, over and over and over again. I mean, what's the story of the flood, if not partially a story of a God of justice who was also a God of second chances, right? Over and over and over again, right? We see a God of second chances. Uh, and in Genesis, we are introduced to a lady named Hagar, and she's functionally a single mom, and she runs away, and God sees her and provides for her and tells her to go back home. And she says, I know that you are a God who sees, right? He is the God who gives Hagar a second chance, right? And that image of sort of second chances is maybe most profoundly seen in the life of uh, Joseph, right? Joseph and his, you know, Technicolor dream coat, remember that guy? Well, the, the, his brothers, the sons of Israel, they get really jealous of him and they sell him into slavery, right? And those are like the good guys, right? <laughs> they sell their brother into slavery and he ends up imprisoned and then God raises him up to Egypt. And then years later, his brothers come back to Egypt and they, they meet their brother who they sold into slavery, who they think is dead and they don't know who he is. But now he's got all the power. And what does Jacob do? Jacob forgives his brothers and he provides for them. And that's sort of how the book of Genesis ends. Why does Jacob forgive his brothers? You know why? It's because Jacob knew God. That's why. Jacob knew the God of creation was also the God of second chances, and he gave his brothers a second chance. In Genesis 50, one of the last verses in the, in the book Joseph says, as for you, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive. You see, friends, the God of creation is also the God of all grace, the God of second chances, because, and this is the last thing I want you to capture, he is the God who keeps his covenant promises. I mentioned that just a few minutes ago. God is a covenant keeping God. And a covenant is simply a solemn bond sealed in blood. It is a deep vow. And the covenant in Genesis 17 that God makes with Abraham, the solemn bond is that he is going to give old Abraham and barren Sarah a child. And that child will one day produce more offspring than there are stars in the sky that will inherit the land of Israel forever. And then somehow one of their offspring will bless all of the nations on the planet, right? But the tension, of course, is we learn about that in Genesis 12, and then the rest of Genesis is sort of telling just the story of Abraham. Okay, God's choosing this family. He's going to use them to redeem the world, and then we hear the story of their family. And when you read the story, are they always doing the right thing? Does the story of Genesis always depict uh, the people of Abraham doing the right thing? Not always, right? The 12 brothers or the 11 brothers sell their brother into slavery, right? There's over and over again, people are making big mistakes. Is, is the point that they're always right? No, the point is God keeps his covenant promises. He chose them. He entered into covenant with them, and he is going to see it through because he is a God who keeps his covenant promises. And he is going to use Abraham to bless the whole planet. I mean, think about it this way. Um, when the New Testament starts off trying to explain what Jesus Christ has come to do, you know what the very first words in the New Testament are? This is how the New Testament begins. This is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of 
Abraham. The first sentence of the New Testament wants you to realize that the offspring of Abraham, the descendant of Abraham that's going to save the world, is none other than Jesus Christ. You see, he is the fulfillment of the covenant of Abraham, right? So what that means is that now Jesus offers you and me a real personal encounter and involvement with his covenant nature. Uh, Let me put it a different way. In faith in Christ, you and I have the opportunity to be brought into that family and into his story. Uh, Galatians 3 says it this way, if you are Christ's, if you belong to Jesus Christ, then you are what? Then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the covenant promises. You see, friends, in Jesus Christ, through his death on our behalf and his resurrection, Jesus genuinely, wholeheartedly offers you and me an opportunity to enter into covenant relationship with him. And of course, Jesus offers us the new covenant. And the sign of this covenant bond is not circumcision, and the blood of this covenant is not the blood of circumcision. The new covenant that Jesus offers, that relationship, is now sealed in the blood of Jesus Christ, shed for us. And what's the new covenant? What's the new solemn bond? The covenant is this. If we confess with our mouths that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe with our whole heart that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. Friends, the, the sign of this covenant, the thing that Abraham's descendants existed to bring about was the new covenant, the new solemn relationship between us and the living God. Uh, this table that we're about to come to is the table of the new covenant. It's the table of a God who created you and me for his glory It's the table of a God who genuinely gives you and me second chances. And it's the table of the God of Abraham. Now, friends, that's the invitation to start seeing the whole story. Let's pray. Father, we praise you this morning that you are the God of Abraham. Father, thank you that you have created us for your glory. And Father, thank you that you are a God of forgiveness and second chances. Thank you that you fulfilled your promise to Abraham to send your son to redeem this broken world. Uh, Father, would you use this communion table now to link us more and more with your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.